Hi everybody, uh, my name's Craig Lawton. I'm a solutions architect out of Australia, if you can't tell from my accent. And I'm really excited to be here today. It's my first reInvent, and I'm really excited to be speaking uh, with these two customers today. So we're gonna hear from iRobot, and they're revolutionizing home robots and cleaning your house, and they've deployed 10 million of these robots worldwide. And then you're gonna hear from Nestle, and they're the world's largest food and beverage company with over, uh, with almost, uh, they're in almost 200 countries worldwide. And you're gonna hear about their architectural best practices and uh, all their war stories on their IoT journey. So just to level set uh, on IoT, at AWS we, we think about Internet of Things in these three pillars. You've got the edge where devices uh, sense and acts, you've got the middle tier where you have cloud computing for the bulk of your compute and storage requirements, and then in the third pillar you have your intelligence uh, tier or pillar where you look for business insights, business analytics, and how you can improve your products and services to your customers. And in 2015, we launched the AWS IoT service, and this allowed devices to securely connect to the cloud, to the AWS IoT service, and to communicate with each other and with AWS services. Uh, messages came into the, the gateway, and the gateway acted as a, a ephemeral pub-sub bus. You could post to a topic, and then you could have other devices and services subscribe to those topics. An adjacent payload came through and you could write rules on, uh, on these messages. You could select parts of the message or all of the message and route the data to back-end services in AWS. And we introduced the shadow service, which allowed cloud developers to at any point in time query the last known good state of an object and also to set the desired state of objects so they could update themselves later and report back. And then last year we, we launched Greengrass, which brought a lot of this functionality out to the edge. So it allowed devices to securely connect to a gateway at the edge and transfer messages between themselves at the edge. And it also included uh, a local shadow service, so you could query the state of uh, an object and a thing locally and update it. And it introduced a local Lambda, so it allowed you to author Lambda functions in the cloud and then deploy them down to the, the edge. And all this was designed to run disconnected, so if you lost an internet connectivity, it kept running. And Greengrass would run on virtually any connected device, whether it was x86 or ARM-based. And none of these, uh, AWS IoT and Greengrass, don't work alone. They work uh, with all of our services, including Lambda, API Gateway, and the full suite of uh, services like our mobile services, Elasticsearch, DynamoDB, S3, etc. So a common theme and a common pattern that we see is you have a device at the edge and it pumps in messages into the IoT service. You have users at the edge that are using their uh, mobile devices perhaps or a controller and communicating using a local protocol in, in the local network. And for our customer examples here today, it's uh, the home. Uh, they're communicating with that device and controlling that device. Data is being sent to the IoT service and the, the data can be easily routed, uh, context can be added, uh, it can be summarised, uh, and the data is sent to back-end services like DynamoDB, Elasticsearch, etc. And then users can also access a lot of this data using their mobile devices or uh, other uh, control planes, uh, using uh, can, an API connection to an API endpoint that connects through to Lambda to DynamoDB. 
And with green grass at the edge now, you can also do a lot of uh, processing of data at the edge, which is uh, really cool, and then you can send that up to the, the cloud when it's required, so you can start to summarise and aggregate and clean data at its point of collection. And another theme that we're going to see is uh, around microservices. So that's uh, a trend that's uh, happening right across the IT industry, and that is breaking up monolithic applications into the, the smallest unit of business value, and that allows you to create an SLA to uh, highly scale your services, and it allows you to come, uh, come, you know, come up with a transaction cost per function call. Another thing we need to consider with IoT solutions is the manufacture of the hardware and how you manage software. Because for the first time, we've had these full end-to-end -end IT solutions where a lot of the solution is actually outside of a data center. So you need to consider how the devices are manufactured and how you enroll them into a platform like AWS IoT securely, and also how you deploy software and update the software for bug fixes and security patches, et cetera. And you, when you operate the scale of iRobot or Nestle, you're collecting a lot of data. So you need to consider the uh, data analytics services that you can use uh, to, to get insights into your platform, such as uh, Redshift, Elasticsearch, QuickSight, et cetera. And also the emerging area of machine learning, which uh, you can use to, to, to look at your data on the back end and train, uh, look for context, look for categorization of your data on the back end, but also machine learning at the edge, uh, using uh, machine learning in your devices. So without further ado, after that level set, I'd like to get James from iRobot up on stage, if you could give him a, a, a warm welcome, and uh, we'll hear about their IoT journey. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is James Jackson. I'm a software engineer at iRobot, and thank you all for having me here today. So first, uh, just let's go over about what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, first, we'll talk a little bit about iRobot and what we do. Uh, I'll do a high-level architecture overview of what we have running in AWS today. Uh, and then I'll go a little deeper into some challenges we had while implementing our system and how we solved them. So a few challenges will be how we deploy our code, uh, how we do red-black deployments, and how we manage all the robots out in the field today. Uh, and finally, we'll talk a little bit about working with the AWS team and our experiences with them. So first, iRobot. We are the consumer robot company. Our most well-known product is the Roomba vacuuming cleaner. You can see it on the left there. We also have a line of mopping robots. Uh, in the middle, we have the Brava Jet and the Brava 3D on the right. So uh, our flagship model, the Roomba 980, was a big step forward for us. It was our first Wi-Fi connected robot, uh, and it was our first mapping robot with systematic navigation. That means it gives you the nice straight lines in your rug. Uh, it means it can, when it's done cleaning, it can create a map of your house and it can post a mission report in the map to the cloud so the end user can view it on their iRobot app. So since we've launched, we've released th three additional models that can connect to AWS. We've tested our system to support millions of robots running in AWS. And finally, we've created over 25 million maps. So we're not gonna stop there. Uh, one, of our, one of our goals is to make I, uh, the Roomba very central player in the smart home. So to do that, we need a very powerful and scalable system. So let's start with a high-level architecture overview. 
Um, so back in 2015, when we started this project, we had the benefit of no legacy code that we had running in the field. Uh, so we decided that we would go with a, full, a fully serverless platform. So what are some of the benefits that we got from that? So first, we reduced our operational overhead. Um, we have the system uh, can support millions of robots in the field today, and we only have a handful of operations people working on uh, the system. Uh, developers really only have to concentrate on business logic, and this is really great for us. So as a developer, I don't have to worry about creating a highly scalable MQTT broker. I don't have to worry about data processing pipeline. All of that is handled by AWS. Uh, as an iRobot developer, I just have to focus on features that will be added to the Roomba and the users uh, can use and benefit from. And finally, the scalability is built in. So for the most part, we don't have to worry about provisioning production environment. We don't have to worry about, you know, the broker's gone down because we didn't provision it properly or things aren't processing right. Uh, AWS handles all of that for us. So this is a very high level diagram of what we have running in the cloud today. So on the left here, you have the iRobot app can talk to the Roomba and both of them can talk to AWS. So on the top here, we've, we've structured our, our code base into different microservices uh, that all represent different parts of functionality in our system. Uh, and the bottom half there is all the AWS services we use. And even today, there are probably more than that. So let's dive a little deeper into one of these. So robot cleaning history. Uh, you have your Roomba. It's driving around your house. It, it's vacuuming everything. You know, everyone's happy. Uh, the Roomba gets back to the dock, and it's going to publish a report of what it did up to IoT. So for, with each deployment, we have, for example, in this, uh, in this example, we have an IoT rule that's listening on a topic that the robot knows to publish on. That message will go into a Lambda, and the Lambda will do some encryption and put that into DynamoDB. Uh, and then on the app side, the app will connect through API Gateway. That gateway uh, endpoint is backed by a Lambda. That Lambda will do some decryption into the DynamoDB table and get the mission report and return it to the user. So for, uh, now let's get into how we deploy this stuff. So again, back in 2015 when we started this, there really wasn't a lot of good tooling out there that could handle serverless. Uh, there were a lot of kind of frameworks starting up, um, but we felt that not, at the time, none of them would be able to handle our use case. So we had a few requirements. So first, if you go back, think back to that microservice slide, we have all of our code broken up uh, nicely into different small pieces of functionality. So this is perfect uh, for Lambda. You, you, you have a lot of different Lambdas that perform one thing, and they shut down, uh, and that will save us a lot of money. So we want to be able to build all these Lambda packages together. There's a lot of zip files we have to create, a lot of you know, Lambda functions to create. Um, Second, we want to do API gateway deployments. So to keep things simpler, we, each of those microservices has its own API Swagger file. And we want to be able to merge those all together and create an API gateway deployment for our system. IAM roles, so since we are serverless, every resource that we touch in AWS is an AWS managed service. And therefore, it's all gated by IAM. So while we will have to write some roles ourselves, it would be nice if our, our tool could take some of the load off us for that one. Uh, and finally, we need to support red-black deployments. Uh, so for us, um, the way we do red-black deployments, just a quick summary, is 
you have your, your version one of your cloud platform running in AWS. You have some new Lambda code you want to push up there, uh, some new database tables, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, you want to deploy that alongside as your V2. Uh, you can move some robots as like test robots over, make sure everything's working okay. And then finally, when you're done, you can throw the switch and move everyone else over to your new deployment. So we did run into some problems there. So here is our, our, first, our first pass at it, our naive solution. Um, so this could be an example of our, our V1 deployment. You have some Lambda functions, some Kinesis streams, some database tables, S3 buckets, IoT roles, everything you need to run your cloud system. Now, here we go, we've deployed uh, version two. You got the same Lambda, or new Lambdas, some Kinesis streams, DynamoDB tables, S3 buckets. The problem we ran into is when a robot goes from this V1 to V2 and the user tries to get the mission history, it's all gone because the table is different than the first table that we were using. Uh, so this was uh, an issue we had to solve uh, when we first started working on this. Uh, so what we did is we wrote our own cloud deployment tool. Um, so it automates the deployment of all of our code into an AWS account. Uh, we decided early on that we want the orchestration of this to happen up in AWS rather than on a client system. So everything uses CloudFormation. Uh, and on the right, I'm going to build a little diagram of you know, what a deployed system looks like, a little deeper look at it. So one issue with CloudFormation is that you know, it, it lags a little bit behind uh, from the AWS services that are released all the time. So what we had to do is we had to create custom resources to handle any AWS service that was not supported by CloudFormation. Um, so think back to that microservice slide. Each microservice gets its own CloudFormation stack with all the resources it needs to work. So next, it will auto-generate a top-level stack with our merged API gateway deployment and any IAM roles that need to be created to manage permissions from one sub-stack to another. Um, so you can see that at the top level here, you got your IAM roles, you got your API gateway deployment. That's all auto-generated at deployment time. And then finally, we also have our tool act as a preprocessor for CloudFormation templates. So you might be familiar with some of the intrinsic functions that CloudFormation provides today. We just added some more for ourselves for you know, quality of life uh, benefits. So let's see how we handle this deployment now uh, with our tool. So first, before we deploy anything else, we'll deploy some persistent data sources that will live from one deployment to another. This could be things like the, a, a maps table, you know, a mission history table, uh, a table that manages you know, who owns which robot, all that stuff gets deployed first. Then we do our V1 deployment, which will now only contain the lambdas, streams. Anything that's transient from one deployment to another, we'll deploy that, uh, then. And then when we're ready for a V2, we deploy it, and we also point it at the same data sources. And then everything, everything just works. Um, and we, now we can maintain our mission history from deployment to deployment. So. This all works great, but we still had some more problems. Uh, so red-black deployments. Uh, so just to start uh, and illustrate some problem we're into, uh, let's take a diagram of you know, the happy path deployment in AWS. You got your V1 deployment here in your AWS account, and you got some robots talking to it. Uh, they're, they're cleaning, they're posting missions, they're posting maps, and they're all happy. Then you deploy your V2. You also have some robots on this one. They're all happy, they're all cleaning, and everything's working fine. Uh, the issue here 
is that this IoT instance is a global to an account. So what's something that might happen from that? So in our V1 deployment, like we talked about before, we have an IoT rule that listens for a mission complete message from the robot, and it puts it in a DynamoDB table. So now we deploy V2, and we have that same rule because we want robots connected to V2 to still post their mission histories. And it'll put it in a, in a DynamoDB table. So the issue here, when your Roomba finishes, it will post on this topic, and both rules will fire. And you'll get duplicate entries. Uh, so that's obviously not something that we want to have happen. So what we did here uh, is we did topic namespacing. So our deployment tool, we added a feature that at deploy time, you give it a, a tag, like a deployment ID, and a specific topic prefix. So it does, when it's doing its pre-processing, it will modify all the IoT rules in the system to have that topic prefix attached to it. And finally, the, the cloud will also store a mapping of which robot ID is uh, on which deployment ID. Uh, and then the robot can talk to AWS and say, you know, which, which version am I on? So the first thing when it does when it boots up, it'll contact the cloud and say, hey, tell me what version I'm on. And the cloud will say, okay, you're on V2. And the robot will take that V2 and use it for any publishing to IoT. So now we have our, our happy animation here. We have the V1 topic prefix on our cleaning complete topic, which we'll put in the DynamoDB table. And then we have our V2 with our V2 topic prefix. So robots on V1, when they publish mission reports, it will only fire that rule on the left. And when robots are on V2, it will only fire the rule on the right. Uh, so this is how we solve this problem around IoT being a global service to an AWS account. So finally, let's talk about how we manage all these things. So there's a lot of questions we might want to know about our robots in the field. Say, for example, how many robots are on software version 2.2? Or maybe how long was robot A's last mission? And most importantly, is robot B even currently connected to the cloud? So an issue we ran into here is that IoT does not support queries on spe uh, specific things shadow values. And we have a lot of use cases for this in our business. So for example, if a customer calls in with a robot issue, the, the customer care agent will need to be able to say, well, okay, your robot's on version 2.2. We've released a fix for your issue in version 2.3. You know, please wait, and we'll push that update to your robot. Um, so from a DevOps standpoint, I have released a new version of the software, 2.3, and I'm pushing it out to robots. I need to know how many robots have actually made it to that version and how many are still on 2.2. Uh, and again, with our deployment IDs, when we migrate robots from one version to an, of our cloud code to another, we need to make sure that they're all migrating, they're all still working, and that we don't have any stragglers on old versions. Uh, so how do we do this? Um, so we have all our robots in the field, all publishing to IoT. So what we do is we use Elasticsearch to store the state of our fleet. So what we have here, uh, all the robots are publishing. We have an IoT rule on the thing shadow document topic. So the way this topic works is any time a robot publishes to IoT, we get a message that contains the entire new thing shadow after the message was published. And we send this into Kinesis, into Lambda, into Elasticsearch. So originally we tried the Elasticsearch action natively, natively in IoT. An issue we ran into there is that 
each, each message from the robot was creating an individual TLS connection to our Elasticsearch cluster. And with the volume of messages coming in, it was, it was taking it down. So that didn't really work for us. So one, one pattern we found is using Kinesis to Lambda kind of allows you to create a buffer on this. And you can also batch process your messages into Elasticsearch. So finally, let's talk about our experiences working with AWS. Um, back, again, back in 2015 when we started this, uh, the options for connecting a robot to IoT, the client certificate, there's only two ways. You could generate a cert from AWS, or you could create a cert signing request uh, and send that to them, and they would give you your certificate. Uh, the problem with us is, at the time, we already had robots deployed in the field. So it wasn't really feasible for us to generate a certificate for each individual robot, send it to the robot, and have that robot take the new cert. Uh, and then also, this is a very difficult process to integrate into a manufacturing line. So with those two older flows, we would need a constant connection from our manufacturing plant to AWS. So any outage in that connection or any AWS outage would create a stop on the line, and that, that is not something that we want. Uh, so what they did for us is they reworked their product roadmap to support bringing your own certificate before we launched our system. Um, and then, so working with AWS Enterprise Support has also been a great experience. We've had uh, weekly on-site office hours, so developers can come bring their question of the day, you know, make sure they're doing the right thing, we're following best practices, we're not gonna do anything crazy that's not gonna scale or work well for us. Um, and we've worked really closely with, the, uh, with them to validate the scalability of our system. Uh, we also have cadence calls with them to track any enhancements to the service. So, for example, that bring your own certificate flow, you know, we'll get updates, you know, how, how is everything going? What are your plans for the future? You know, how can we kind of adapt to handle any changes in the, in the platform? And finally, we've scheduled a lot, a lot of low test events with them to make sure that everything is going to work. So, you know, Black Friday, Christmas morning, we get huge registration spikes in our robots. So we need to test for those events to make sure you know, everything's gonna work and our system is not gonna fall over. Uh, so, so finally, um, just to kind of reiterate everything, uh, building, on AWS is, building on AWS has been really great for us. Um, and we've created a really great system with a small team. So developers, testers, operations, we probably have you know, 10 to 20 people working on this. Um, our red-black deployment scheme, I think, is one of our, our best assets. So it allows us to deploy new code into our environments, test it, and migrate, ro uh, migrate robots from one to another without any downtime to the robot or to the end user. Um, our Elasticsearch cluster has enabled us to perform very powerful queries on our fleet of robots and kind of get a, a good snapshot in time of how everything's performing. Uh, and then finally, AWS has really worked with us to help us succeed using AWS IoT and all the managed services they provide today. Thanks, James. Um. Thanks, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting one of those <laughs> iRobots at home and mapping out my house. Mm -hmm. I've got two kids and two cats, so it'll be interesting to see how they, mm -hmm. how they deal with a, a robot vacuum cleaner. <laughs> um, I noticed with Elasticsearch that uh, you collect all the data all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder what led you to that decision, and sure. also oh, the types of queries that you're, you're performing. Sure, so, so first, you know, collecting all the data all the time, it's really important to be able to kind of look at your fleet and say, are we good, you know, is everything okay, and, and what are our robots doing, uh, and make sure everything that we're doing is okay. 
Uh, so like I said, the kind of queries we're performing, you know, when we're pushing software updates, you know, everything's happy, you know, no, no problems. You know, when we're releasing new versions of cloud code, are the robots migrating? Uh, and just, you know, all that kind of stuff is really helpful to us from an operations point of view. Interesting. And another thing I noticed was that you've combined a lot of times the AWS IoT service mm -hmm. and Kinesis. Now, notionally at a really high level, both services are around you know, streaming and moving data around. I was wondering what uh, decisions you took about when to use one versus the other? Sure, so, so we use Kinesis in a lot of ways on our platform. Um, so the one that I demonstrated in uh, the slides today was kind of batch processing updates from IoT into Elasticsearch. Uh, and that way we can kind of not overload our cluster, we don't have to over-provision it so high that it's gonna cost us a ton of money. Um, in that, so that you know, we can push 100 messages at a time and not take everything down. Uh, the second way we use it that's really important is acting as kind of a reliability buffer for uh, messages from IoT into you know, any of our backend systems. So one example, uh, we have a lot of, sometimes we have mission, or sorry, messages from the robot we wanna take action and store it in a DynamoDB table or S3 bucket. So what we do is we put Kinesis in front of the Lambda, uh, and so if our Lambda ever goes down or there's ever throttling issues on a backend database, uh, we'll get a lot of errors, a lot of alarms will raise. Uh, we can fix the issue, and then the Kinesis tree will just become, it'll become happily processing again, and it will start putting all the, all the backup messages into the backend data storage. Okay. And, and one other question I had was, uh, I noticed that you've gone with a serverless approach and used the, the cloud-managed platforms. Um, and did you consider containers and, and versus the serverless approach, and, and what are the benefits that you found? Sure, so, so I'll, I'll preface this by saying I don't have a ton of experience with containers. Uh, so like I said before, we didn't have any legacy code that we cared about, you know. We decided that from, a, from an operational standpoint, you know, a total cost of ownership standpoint, that serverless would be better for containers. Um, and really from my point of view, containers seem like a very good solution, or at least a very good stepping stone from people that have code that's already out there that they need to maintain, they need to, they have on-premise or EC2, and they wanna, you know, start man moving towards a managed service without kind of taking the big leap. But for us, since we had nothing out there, serverless seemed like the natural choice. Yeah. Thanks, James. Uh, put your hands together for James, for my robot. And we're gonna introduce uh, David from Nestle to the stage to talk about uh, Nestle's journey with IoT. Welcome, David. Good one. Thanks. Hi everyone, I'm David Ferrier from Nestle. I'm a digital innovation architect in our group in San Francisco. We are based in San Francisco, we have a small outpost and we're focused more on the consumer journeys for our Nestle consumers. So a little bit of Nestle, we are uh, eight, around 90 billion Swiss francs, Swiss francs to dollar one to one uh, in sales in 2016. We have 300 and around 330,000 employees in over 150 countries. Almost every single country you have a Nestle product available. We have 418 factories in 86 countries and more than 2,000 brands. Just to give you a little bit of volume for Nestle, every day we have one billion uh, Nestle products being sold. Um, just to give a little bit of the products that we have, and this is only in US, 
you can see that we have like a very large portfolio of products. We're going for pet food to baby food and also to confectionery, coffees, and uh, everything that is related to food. So this, this presentation here is just to explain a little bit of the journey that we had in order to implement our, our, our own IoT journey within Nestle. So back in 2015, we had started with a new challenge coming from our uh, market, Japan market, where they, they wanted to release a new machine that is going to be connected, and they wanted to say, we, we, we really need to release that by uh, September 2016, and as a matter of fact, it was released in October 2016. We need to be very flexible, and we have to have a very, very low cost. Uh, and we need to make sure that that platform is also scalable and completely agnostic because we want to use the same platform for other products. So when we first start doing that, like, um, let's, let's be honest, uh, traditional IT organization, the first thing that people think about is they, okay, let's create our own service, let's put it on premise, let's lock the database, let's make sure that everything is locked over there. Uh, that's where we started doing our own proof of concept. And it comes back to say, okay, first of all, what we need to decide in Nestle is to identify what is IoT for us and what is going to be our reference architecture when it comes back to IoT and how other products are going to be connected within our IoT platform. So we just came back with a very high-level model that is say, okay, in this case, we have a um, Nestle coffee machine, but it can also be like, uh, we also have like a baby Nest machine, or it can have a tea machine, or even our vending machines connect to the same platform only to, to make sure that we are able to scale up the number of messages that are coming in and the process that we need to go over there. So that becomes our reference model. And then we, we, we start working together with AWS in order to say how we are going to make sure that this is going to be available on uh, October 2016. So this is pretty much the, uh, the end state architecture that we have for Japan. Uh, we pretty much use, I, I mean, you guys have seen already over the conference, this is very, very much what other companies are already doing. Uh, the, the journey that we have, we have a lot of learnings during 2016 before the, before the go live. So we have pretty much the AWS IoT, the message uh, broker over there. We also have the rules engine uh, operating in different type of messages. But things that we didn't know at the, uh, before we start is how to use in Kinesis. And Kinesis stream for us was actually something that helped us a lot because we were able to buffer all the messages coming from those machines. And together with, um, with Lambda, we're able not only to buffer, but also to do a process on the, on the buffer, uh, on the stream side, before we actually put the data on the staging areas on uh, our Redshift, which becomes our um, database point for that. We also have, uh, as, you, as you see from down below, we also have uh, firehose just to make sure that we store every single message that we receive without any process. So we were able to later on do the bugs or even validate to say, is this the right information? And believe me, when I say that, people say, okay, you're probably going to archive that. We do a lot of analysis on those data, uh, on those messages. And those become very, very important for us, even when you think about in the future when we're going to do machine learning and deep learning on that, on those messages. So you can even see a pattern going forward later on to say that SE3 connect maybe to, um, to Athena or any other type of machine learning going side by side. 
Then moving forward, we say, one of the things that we need to, be, to guarantee, and it's kind of a completely break about the whole mindset on traditional organizations to say, this system is going to be responsible only for IoT. And as soon as you go to the business, the business starts to say, oh, can I put logic on the CRM on that side? Can I put logic on the ERP on that side? And as a developer, the first thing they say is, of course you can do, right? You can put all the, the code over there. But then you start going to, to a, a simple concept to say, we are duplicating logic. And if you go for the very simplistic process of microservices, and that is also the, the whole methodology that we are also applying within, within our IOTs to say, we need to make sure that we do the right job and let the, let the other do the other job like the CRM, the campaign management, and everything else. There is already some, somebody else that is responsible. If they are not doing a good job, let's try to enhance that job for them. And that, that, that becomes quite critical for us and critical for the success and the speed about implementing that. And also allow us to have like a very, very frequent changes in terms of our code. We can manipulate different lambdas without being worried about what is going to be the business logic later on on the CRM. That is, that is fundamental for any type of uh, microservice and serverless uh, implementation that we, we, we are going to do also in the future. So, we're also using a lot of the, um, um, you don't see here any type of machine learning because one of the things that we also need to, to teach our business is actually to say, if you try to put light predicted on day one, they will not understand directly prediction. So what we are putting directly for them is actually business insights on dashboards. So understanding consumption, understand uh, behaviors of our consumers make more, more sense for our marketeers on day one. And later on, we are going to add side-by-side -side predictions, which comes naturally for them. So this is, this is our, our, our first interaction. Now, moving forward to that, we see more and more integration with backends. And we also see integrations to say, we might need to have like live reports or data that are coming directly from either the um, Kinesis stream that you need to do real-time analysis. So if they become business critical, we can have like live dashboards about such a data. And we're also going to see uh, more and more going back to say, what is going to be our asset management solution? It's definitely not, we don't believe that the IoT should be the whole asset management solution because we also have integrations with our ERPs that already have our asset management solutions. So we see more integrations going to asset management solutions, going back and forth even to the IoT side. Now, saying that, let's, let's go back to a little bit of what has been the journey so far with AWS, right? So after one year, we still have no incidents. And believe me, we are monitoring that very close. Um, as an organization, we need to make sure that we don't have any uh, crashes or anything like that. So we have a full year without any incidents on AWS, which is pretty awesome. Uh, I don't like the term 100%, but it's close to 100%. Uh, the way that IoT was, or the, the, the service of IoT was architect on AWS, was very seamless for us to integrate other services. So we could just come back when we had the first discussions with AWS, say why we are going to use Kinesis Stream. And that integration becomes so natural that 
not only, not only that, but also even the certificates. Jamie just mentioned about bring your own certificates. Such, such services and evolution of the product becomes easy, and it makes like, uh, our life much easier. Uh, going back also to the fact of the certificates, we have the de facto uh, implementation of security. So we already uh, uh, ship our devices with our own certificates, and we are able to apply different policies and topics as soon as the uh, device is on board on our platform. So by the time the device is on board, we understand what is this device. We set that information directly into our Redshift in terms of reference. And we also set both the policies and the topics that that device is going to be uh, responsible to, to publish data. Uh, again, as I was just mentioned, Lambda for us was like, um, I, I would say, a fantastic thing, right? Every, we are all taught about, okay, we need to create like instances of either EC2s or online services, and then suddenly Lambda came, and we say, wow, that's great. We don't have to manage the services, and as a matter of fact, the elasticity for that is amazing. And we can do a lot of playgrounds with very, very tiny uh, piece of code. So this becomes like fundamental for our uh, serverless architecture. Again, I'll just mention about the Kinesis and how we are decoupling that. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite interesting the way that we are doing Kinesis in terms of uh, buffering the data. Because we can, we can buffer the full data of Kinesis for up to seven days without any processing. So if you go back to the, if you see back our, our, our diagram, we are able to ingest up to seven dates, uh, days of data and do micro, uh, micro batchings for our Lambda functions before we, we, we dump that. Uh, that gives us a little bit of advantage to say, we can even upgrade the code during production time without affecting the data that you already have on the Kinesis stream. That is fantastic for us. Uh, we use a lot, a lot of CloudWatch. CloudWatch becomes our main metrics. We have a lot of alerts, also going back with CloudWatch, that, is, that states, okay, something goes wrong with some messages. And we use CloudWatch not only for our Lambda, but also for the whole stack that we have over there. And more importantly, we have a lot of cloud formations. So when we start the journey, we didn't have um, environment variables available for that. And we were using all of the configurations being based on DynamoDB tables. With the new environment variables, we were able to simply change our cloud formation script and add different, uh, different environment variables to say, this is actually our development environment, or stage environment, or production environment. Or even say, this is actually valid for solution one, two, or three. So th th things that we have to, to solve, right? Um, it, 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 the, way, the way that we are processing uh, updates on the, on the device, we try to send S3 links to the devices. Right Now, if you just think about the IoT certificate is only valid for the IoT. I cannot use the same certificate to go to S3 and get that information. And I don't want you to open S3 to the world. I want you to make sure that S3 becomes a little bit uh, restricted. So in this case, what we, what we had done, um, we work also side by side with AWS on that part, and also our partners on the, um, on the software integrator. We, we, we create a, a mechanism just to say, okay, before we send the, um, the link, we are going to send a link to S3 
that is only valid for amount of time. So it's a pre-signed linked that is, link, that is sent to that, to that IoT device, sorry, to the device itself. And by that time, we can, we can able to say, okay, that link is only available for up to four days or actually two days or even one hour. It depends on the criticality of your, of your updates. And with that, the device is able to connect to S3, download updates like content update or even firmware update directly. Um, in, ter in terms of uh, IoT data compression, we, we, we have some of our machines. I mean, I just show you the, the initial Japanese machine, but we also have other machines already uh, live into our uh, landscape. And one of those machines that we, the way that we do, we compress data. We don't send you the full JSON, which is uh, quite, quite large. So for that, we're using protbuf in terms of the protocol. So we just reduce the data, transmit that data being uh, compressed. We use the same certificates from, from the device, and we're able to uh, explode, let's call it that way, uh, into a proper Lambda function, you know, before we store that into Redshift. Um, Again, I just mentioned in terms of the data batch processing that we have with, uh, with Kinesis and Lambda. We, we use that a lot in terms of micro-batching, and it, it works phenomenally well for us. Um, one, one, one of the things that we have, to, we have to work is about data duplication. Some of, our, some of our machines are connected via the phone only. They are not connected directly. We use the phone as a proxy. So you can imagine like two or three different customers send the same data. So we need to make sure that we don't duplicate the data on Redshift. For that, the way that we did is that we just dump the data directly into a staging table on Redshift. We make all the cleansing and even the um, data manipulation on that staging table. And then we perform simple queries before that is being in, uh, deployed directly into the final table. That makes our life much easier. And the way that the, the, the performance time of the queries on Redshift becomes much, much faster than if, you, if you're doing that directly on uh, a simple S3 bucket. Uh, and we, 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 we are not using quick sites ourselves. We're using a, a separate solution. Uh, there was different issues for us, especially the connection between Redshift and QuickSight was not available during, uh, during our tests. Th th things that we talk with uh, AWS, I mean, we, we, we talk about the device shadow usage and the, the price model for that. We changed, uh, I, I mean, just being a new announcement from, uh, from AWS, I think, last week. And the price model changed drastically. And for us, it makes a lot of sense for going that. So we're going to use more and more uh, the, the shadow, which is something that we really love. But before even querying uh, every single shadow you pay for a message, it was a different model. Now it becomes easier because you can make a full connection to the, to the cloud. Um, in terms of the IoT device registry, I think there's a lot of things that uh, AWS is already working on that. And we are working side by side with them in terms of improving the registry process itself. Uh, End-to-end testing is something that today everybody needs to, to do by itself. And, and we believe that uh, this together with the proper blueprints should be also part of the program. So you can, you can make sure that you can do something very fast and, and try to do the end-to-end -end process right at the beginning, for, especially for testing, uh, which is also correlated to let, let's imagine that you need to do some uh, simulation of traffic. So think about a little bit of the chaos monkey that is being working for Netflix. 
You also wanted to do something very similar on the IoT. So how are you going to maybe fail over even zones? That becomes quite important for us as well. Uh, today, the device management portal is something that is still not there. Uh, and we believe there's a lot of improvements for that. Uh, and we believe that the, the API security should also use multi-factor uh, authentication process. Now, before I finish that, I just need to mention two things. Um, the, the work with AWS has been fantastic. All the, all the architects that we've been working so far have been very, very, very helpful. And I would strongly recommend anybody here to contact your architects on the AWS. And we also have like a fantastic help from Cefriel Milano uh, in Italy, right? And if you just think about a traditional IT company like, like Nestle, uh, getting new concepts like microservices and things like that is not something easy. So we rely a lot on, the, on Cefriel for that, and they help us a lot on this part. So that's it, pretty much. Thanks. Thank you. Oops. Oh, don't pull off the back of the stage. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, 2015 was a big year. We released the AWS IoT service, and also you landed your first uh, platform in Japan. Yeah. I'm curious uh, how you, the vision for the platform changed during that period. Right. So initially, when, when you thought about the, the platform, it was really like, okay, let's create like a central repository itself and make sure that it's agnostic. So we need to have like multiple messages going over there. But 2015, we didn't have all the services that AWS is putting in place right now. So a lot of the new services are already going to improve even our, our, our landscape. But more importantly, we're also going to see, depending on the criticality of the services, we need also to say, this is not lo no longer going to be into a single zone, it's going to be multi-zone. And that's where we're going to handle. Luckily for us, we're using a lot of um, um, uh, cloud formation script, yep. and we will be able to do that very fast. So, yeah. Makes it easy. Yeah. Uh, because you started in Japan and then you rolled it out globally, can you, could, can you describe the considerations that you took in a multi-region architecture and how that applied to this? Absolutely. So, one of the things that we had to, we had to validate was really like, what is the response time? What is going to be the latency that you're going to have for the devices? And Luckily for us, the response time and latency was not a problem in terms of the device that we have. Now, of course, if you're going back to um, medical devices, you cannot do the same, uh, the yeah. same approach. Uh, but for us, that latency becomes like irrelevant, especially when the architecture between the companies goes so fast within the AWS. So the only, the only pain point that you have is the first request to, to the AWS. And for us, that was completely um, irrelevant. And we, we, we do see, and we already have been deployed, not only in Japan, we already have Mexico, Korea, and um, North America as well. We, we do see that going, but again, the response time for such devices, for such um, inter interaction, it becomes completely irrelevant. Excellent. And uh, for you uh, and your platform, I remember conversations we had mm -hmm. earlier around the importance of interoperability yes. between components. Are you able to discuss that briefly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not only between components, but also between uh, services, right? Well, when, when we think about Internet of Things, one of the things, and, and actually Jane also mentioned, she say we wanted to be part of the connected home, 
I mean, everybody wants to be part of the connected home, but without having something on the cloud and something that is scalable, you're not going to be able to do that. So for us, this, this was also like a key sale point for our, our platform is to say, yes, if we're going to go for something that is completely silo, we're not going to have um, any type of handshake with different services. Now, if you put something on the cloud, if you put something on the microservices, and you want to say, like tomorrow, my Nescafe machine wants to talk with the Roomba, or yeah. kind of weird, but <laughs> it, it might happen, right? Uh, but in the end, we might have different messages that we wanted to say, okay, the, the room is clean, now it's time for a coffee, yep. or something like that. We need to have some sort of connect, connection. And that is not possible if you don't have a well-architected uh, solution like we have when, on, on the AWS. I'm imagining the, the vacuum cleaner with the coffee oh, yeah, out, coming up now. Definitely. Uh, so thanks for, for listening today. I think uh, if you listen to the stories from iRobot and Nestle, you'll see how they've built uh, cost-effective solutions with small teams that scale globally. Um, and uh, the, uh, the experience they've had with AWS with the architects and also support. Uh, it's really exciting to, to hear the stories. It's been a real joy to work with um, both James and David on this presentation. So put your hands together. We're going to be around for a, a few questions afterwards if you'd like to come up the front and ask. Feel Thanks, free. Guys. Thank you very much. Thanks.